welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm Associate Professor of Medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. This week on Plenary Session is Week 2 of my travels. Right now, I'm probably in Sydney, Australia. You're in for a real treat today. We have Dr. Jonathan Kimmelman here talking about some of his research, looking at the portfolio of cancer clinical trials. This is incredibly important work and you won't want to miss this discussion. And of course, to keep you sharp while I'm gone, we have question of the week. And don't worry, I'll be back in December for more hard-hitting monologues of plenary session. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast, and we want to know your feedback on them. I'm back in Plenary Session HQ for Question of the Week, Hematology Oncology Boards Edition with Dr. Sven Olsen, Chief Fellow of Hematology Oncology. Dr. Olsen, it's great to have you here. Listeners will like to know that we are currently wearing full suit and tie tie. with white coat on top to be ultra professional compared to my previous outfit. That's right. So listeners should know that we've stepped up our game. And in fact, you're actually wearing a top hat that you've borrowed from Dr. Schatzel. Isn't that right? And we're both sweating in here because of all the layers. All the layers. But we are dressed to the nines. So Dr. Olson, what question do you have for us this week on question of the week? All right. This is a... 25-year-old woman. She returns to your clinic while receiving frontline chemotherapy with 5-FU, leucovorin, and oxaliplatin, or Fulfox, with bevacizumab for a recently diagnosed metastatic KRAS wild-type descending colon adenocarcinoma with metastases to the liver. So after two months of chemo, her imaging shows an excellent response. Uh, The patient has three children at home, and she and her husband want to be very aggressive in hopes of proceeding to a metastasectomy of her liver mets. She asks today about adding anti-EGFR therapy to her regimen. So the question is, which of the following should you advise this patient regarding anti-EGFR therapy? A. Anti-EGFR therapy has no role for patients with KRAS wild-type metastatic colorectal cancer. B. Anti-EGFR therapy improves PFS when given in combination with systemic chemo and bevacizumab. C. Anti-EGFR therapy improves OS when given in combination with systemic chemo and bevacizumab. Or D. Anti-EGFR therapy worsens PFS when given in combination with systemic chemo and bevacizumab. I see. So, this is the patient, metastatic colorectal cancer, getting full fox bev. KRAS wild type. 
Now, I guess the question stem doesn't have it all, but it doesn't have BRAF mutation status and extended spectrum RAS testing, but we'll assume that's all wild type. No mutations there and no uh, extended spectrum RAS mutations. Um, the family wants to be aggressive as possible, and they're thinking of adding anti-EGFR therapy. That's a uh, right-sided Right-sided, right, tumor. Okay, so we can talk about sidedness. I hope you can. Incorrect. Right? It is a left-sided tumor. Sorry. It's a left-sided tumor. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so um, we can talk about that too uh, in the discussion. But our answers are anti-EGFR therapy has no role in wild-type KRAS tumors. Anti-EGFR therapy improves PFS in combination with chemo and BEV. Anti-EGFR therapy improves OS in combination with chemo and BEV. Anti-EGFR therapy worsens PFS in combination with chemo and BEV. I guess what I would say is that the addition of anti-EGFR therapy to metastatic colon cancer um, is not advised in patients with RAS mutation or BRAF mutation or extended spectrum RAS mutations. And so the wild type are the people who do benefit. So the first answer is wrong. It's mm -hmm. not that it has no role in wild type. That's the people in whom you're thinking about it. But it has no role in combination with Avastin. In fact, it has been known to worsen progression-free survival when added on to a, the biologic Avastin. So I would say the last answer is the correct answer. Correct. And there are at least two trials to back this up, both phase three trials. So this is your perfect type of question that exactly. you like. No, exactly. That's why I like the question. Yeah, it's a phase three data. Yeah. Yes. So the first one was by Hecht et al. in JCO 2009. And the other was by Toll et al. in New England Journal 2009. So the first one in JCO was a phase three of chemo plus BEV plus panitumumab versus just chemo plus BEV. And that was either full FOX or full Fury. And the PFS was significantly worse when you added panitumumab to this 10 versus 11.4 months that was significant uh the os although they didn't uh, i don't think they powered for it of course not why bother with the useful endpoints the os was 19 versus 24 months so worse when you had panitumumab it's not good but it's not um, significant. And they looked at whether it was in, you know, stratified based on KRAS mutation status, so KRAS wild type or mutated. And the detrimental effect of adding panitumumab persisted even in the KRAS wild type group. That's and, of course, they had lots of toxicity. Yeah. And I will highlight that they had more venous blood clots in the arm that had panitumumab. Wow. So that this is might a be a little opinion piece I write. Oh, for classical hematologists. Okay, good. <laughs> Not that anyone should do this anyway, but... By us and for us, okay? Yes. Okay, so that's the data that shows that. And then there was one more, the other uh, phase three in New England Journal, by Toll et al, was Capox plus Bev plus Cetuximab mm -hmm. versus just Capox plus Bev. And it was the same story, worse than PFS. Okay, that's fair. Um, the other thing I think is worth talking about is Fulfox plus Bev, which is not supported by overall survival in that Lensol study in 2008 in the JCO that has a PFS benefit, but no OS benefit, but it's widely used. It's well, widely you were, used. You were writing a piece on this with Dr. Nate Gay, yeah, former we published, fellow. Oh, oh, no, we haven't. Was it published? Uh, it's been accepted for publication, but at the time of this podcast, I shall not speak about okay. it, but it's coming. Well, so tell us about sightedness now that you brought it up. Sure. Well, they, they go out of their way to talk about it being a KRS wild type descending colon, meaning left-sided. So this is something that's come up, I think, in the, just the last few years, and it's, you know, uh, well enough known now that it's even on the NCCN guidelines. But essentially, you know, if you have a KRAS wild type, the prevailing thought would be to use a, a EGFR inhibitor. And if you do not have KRAS wild type, if you're KRAS mutant, you'd use more of a bevacizumab. But in fact, if you have a right-sided tumor, even if you are KRAS uh, wild, wild type, type. Mm -hmm. you tend to do better with 
bevacizumab. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in those cases, we tend to favor doing that if we're going to use a biologic at all. I would say in this case, I might have actually used a anti-AGFR up front, but for whatever reason, they didn't. Mm. They used oh, yeah. Bev at first. I see. I think that's a good that's a good pearl, Doctor Olson. That's a that's all you all you need to talk about. I guess there's one thing to say about this patient, which is although um, the patient is hopeful uh, that they will be able to undergo um, a metastasectomy uh, for synchronous metastasis after receiving chemotherapy with a biologic, um, which I think the prospects of that are perhaps it's not a very high probability event. It's pro- maybe a lower probability event. It might be worth knowing the wild-type KRAS status. So for subsequent lineup therapy, you can consider anti-EGFR therapy, maybe in combination with irinotecan or single agents, atuximab as a subsequent line of therapy. And then the other thought is, uh, could test this patient for MSI status and think about unleashing that immune system. I wanted to ask, you know, is there any setting in which we combine, other than, you know, combining checkpoint inhibitors and, you know, PDL one and CTLA-4, but are there any other settings where we combine biologics? Yeah. Pertuzumab, trastuzumab, Cleopatra. Okay, fine. Okay, that's the other one. And then besides Nevo Ipi, which I would say, to be honest with you... Those don't count. I know, they don't count because it's just BMS trying to bundle everything together. Um, And also, I mean, because, I mean, even in melanoma, it's still not proven that the sequence and the combo is better than the sequence for OS. Um, Where else do we combine targeted therapies? I guess BRAF and MEC. BRAF MEC. Okay, Okay. upstream, downstream. Yeah, BRAF MEC. So I'm thinking of more and more as I say this, so that was a dumb question. No, no, I think it's a good good question because as you think it through, it's a a good question. I'm trying to think of ways in which you could approach this question and say, well, where else would we even use two biologics together? And is it so uncommon that you wouldn't even pick that? But I guess we do, so. We do in some cases, but you're right in the sense that of all the universe of places where we could use two, we probably use two in a very few settings. And that's probably because a lot of the times when you combine these two, toxicity is really, really bad. And that's been sort of screened out in phase one. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a good question. I think it's a question that, like I said, the questions I like, which is that this directly appeals to a randomized controlled trial that answers the question. Those are my favorite questions. So Dr. Olson, you're off my bad list. I'm going to keep calling it the bad list, but it's not called that. Okay. Well, I'm glad it, it dovetailed with me learning more about oncology as I prepared these questions. This is good. It's good for me to go over this stuff. It helps me to review. And uh, yeah, I've been really enjoying teaching as a chief fellow. So this helps me. That's good. And I think listeners should direct their feedback. If you like Dr. Svenjamin Olson, he's at Svenjamin at Twitter. And you can direct your feedback to him if you appreciate him taking the time out of his busy schedule to teach us something here. <laughs> so thanks, Sven, for coming on. My pleasure. I'm back in plenary session HQ, joined via Skype by Dr. Jonathan Kimmelman. Dr. Kimmelman is the James McGill Professor in Biomedical Ethics at McGill University. He is Director of the Biomedical Ethics Unit. And I tried to introduce him a moment ago, but I screwed up my recording, so I'm reintroducing him. But what I said a moment ago was that I think among all the people who are thinking in cancer medicine, Dr. Kimmelman consistently strikes me as one of the most inventive and original thinkers. And his research is something that so many of us in cancer medicine take for granted or we don't see that we really ought to take a deeper look at. And so I'm a big fan of all his papers and I've learned so much from them. So Dr. Kimmelman, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Vinay. Big fan of yours. And uh, again, thanks for all those flattering words. I wanted to jump in and and start on asking you, you know, about the unique insight you've brought to cancer clinical trial space. 
which is that when you think about a cancer clinical trial or you think about a cancer drug, you don't just zoom in on the level of that trial or that drug. Um, you take a higher view. You take the 30,000-foot view. And in a number of your publications, what you're doing is you're asking for a drug that came to market, what would it look like if I looked at every single clinical trial in this space, every trial that's ever tested this drug? You take a sort of portfolio-level view of these drugs, which is a term that you've coined. Um, so I guess my question to you is, why do you think it's important that we we take this 30,000-foot view? So I'm a research ethicist. My main preoccupation is uh, looking at how we protect patients in clinical trials. And a lot of my field, a lot of research ethics is sort of takes an individual trial by trial basis, mm -hmm. uh, looking at the risk benefit balance. But to me, what I'm really interested in is how much human welfare do we need to put into a research system in order to get a given unit of human welfare out of it? Are there more efficient ways to research? Are there ways that we can uh, spare patients who are giving something up when they go into clinical trials of some of the burdens in developing a new drug. And uh, I guess years ago, I got interested in looking at the ways that risk and benefit evolves as you go from a first-in-human trial through to uh, a randomized controlled trial or through to even a post-licensure clinical trial. And one of the things that became really clear to me as I did that was the enormous volume of trialing that goes on in cancer, the enormous volume of parallel trialing. And it struck me in that that there are a lot of inefficiencies that emerge from that cacophony of different kinds of clinical investigations. But because most research ethics is preoccupied with looking at individual trials and approving them on a trial-by-trial -trial basis, a lot of those inefficiencies never really become apparent either to the researchers, to the ethicists, or to funding bodies. And so for years, I viewed my task as trying to uncover some of the different ways that we have efficiencies in our system and some of the different ways that we have inefficiencies in our system. And that's led me to really think uh, more on a, a portfolio basis than, uh, than on an individual trial basis. One of the ways in which we might like try to make this like crystal clear in the mind of the listener is, is to just use like a hypothetical. So l let me say, for instance, um, you know, I'm a company and I'm developing a red pill and a yellow pill. And let's say after 10 years of clinical trials, I have learned that the red pill is good in multiple myeloma. It's good in the myelodysplastic syndrome. It doesn't really work so well in the other leukemias, and it doesn't really work so well in the solid tumors. Let's say I've learned that the yellow pill works really well in prostate cancer or in combination with a pill that's been on the market for many decades for women with breast cancer. So these are things I've learned after a decade. And what you're saying is that research ethicists historically have not thought about what did it take you to learn those facts? You know, you now you know a decade later that this is where this works and this is where it doesn't work. This is where this drug works and where it doesn't work. And you're saying it could have taken you, you know, 1,000 patients participating in clinical trials. But maybe it took you 10,000 patients. Maybe it took you 20,000 patients. And maybe it took you 80,000 patients participating in trials. And what you're saying is it would be important to minimize the number of people you've had to expose in clinical trials to either the investigational agent or control arm agents to learn these facts. In other words, companies care a lot about minimizing the amount of dollars they spent to learn those facts. That's something that's their bottom line. But shouldn't they also care about minimizing the number of people they expose to these potentially you know, toxic and lethal products to learn these facts? Is, is, that, is that a fair way of sort of conceptualizing this? 
Yeah, it's actually a great way of uh, sort of uh, re-articulating the broad project. And it's not just that the patients are exposed to drugs that could be unsafe and or ineffective, but patients are giving up time to make extra clinic visits. Oftentimes when patients have uh, advanced disease, uh, that time is really precious for them. There's different ways they can use that time. And in research, typically there are extra research procedures, uh, things as trivial as blood draws, but also things more serious like uh, tumor biopsies uh, that patients, you know, uh, that are genuine sacrifices for patients. And so, you know, if you are trying to design a research system, you want to minimize the amount of patient burden that you're asking patients to undertake in order to develop a new drug. And you want to maximize the speed through which you can uncover the efficacy of a new drug so that you can get that into patients uh, as quickly as possible. Now, if somebody were critical of, of this articulation, they might say something like, well, look, we don't test drugs in places where they're unlikely to work. Say, for instance, you had a drug that was a potent tyrosine kinase inhibitor of, say, BCR-ABLE. And you'll know why I'm picking that target because you've done work in that space. So let's say I have a BCR-ABLE inhibitor. I'm not going to be so foolish as to test a BCR-ABLE inhibitor in prostate cancer and lung cancer and all these cancers for which I know it doesn't have the, the targetable alteration. I'm only going to test it in places where there's BCR-ABLE, where there's CKIT, where there's um, PDGFR. I'm only going to test it in places where it'll hit the target. But you have actually looked at that particular question, and 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 you've you've studied that, and what have you found there? Yeah, well, uh, typically after a new cancer drug is approved, there is a extensive testing of a drug against uh, a variety of different indications. Often there is very limited mechanistic and or preclinical evidence to support that testing. Uh, I guess about a year ago, I published a paper that was looking at the preclinical justification described in the introduction sections of phase two clinical trials. And a large fraction of phase two cancer trials uh, don't actually even cite any preclinical evidence that is evidence from live animals that the drug works in a particular indication. They're often based on fairly kind of speculative, kind of in vitro kinds of studies that suggest that a kinase may possibly be involved in the progression of an illness. And uh, often that's enough to uh, motivate a clinical trial going forward. I should mention that, you know, a lot of these post-approval trials are not necessarily industry funded. I mean, in our studies, only about half of the post-approval studies are industry funded. So a lot of these studies are publicly funded studies. Uh, and the rationale behind them, when you look at them as a group, maybe every each individual study, there's kind of a plausible story for why they might have done that, why they might have done that clinical trial. But when you look at them as a group, uh, it's just, you know, the, the plausibility is a lot weaker. It's, it just seems kind of uh, unclear exactly why so much testing is going forward on so limited uh, amount of uh, evidence. You know, I mean, if I were to speculate, because what you're drawing attention to the fact is that this cannot be solely explained by financial motivations, because many of the people driving this clinical trials agenda are people in whom they're not really driving benefit, even if these products were to receive off-label licensure for these uh, alternative use, even if these products were to be used off-label. Um, and, and what I think it maybe boils down to is the fact that these are shiny new toys for clinical trialists, that all things being equal... You know, and we see this in, you know, I see this often in, in, in oncology, all things being equal, it is much more sexy and alluring to test a $200,000 molecularly targeted drug for chronic GVHD than it is to go back and 
pick some dirty old, you know, non-specific drug that's lost its sexiness, that's not really being discussed at the plenary session, and test that in a phase two trial. So even if I'm running an, you know, an investigator-initiated um, sort of departmental or, or or governmental funded trial, I want to be I want to be where the buzz is. I want to be what people are talking about, and they're talking about these newer drugs. And and that might be sort of like a subconscious reason why we gravitate to broadening these portfolios. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, there's a charitable, a more charitable interpretation, mm-hmm. which is that oftentimes these post-approval trials are being tested in indications that are fairly rare cancer indications, and there might not be private funding for those kinds of uh, clinical trials. And so in some cases, you know, you have a condition that doesn't really have, uh, you know, very effective treatment strategies. And, you know, there's a small chance that this drug might be useful. So, you know, a group of academic investigators gets public funding or institutional funding uh, to move that, uh, that trial forward. So again, like when you look at each one of these individual trials, there's often a plausible story for why you might want to have run that trial. But when you zoom out, you know, again, look at the 30,000 level, um, the picture starts to look a lot less flattering and you start to sort of wonder why is it that we're doing so much trialing on so limited amount of evidence with so little gain in terms of advancing care. Uh, I think I should also say, you know, and you're kind of alluding to it in your remarks, that uh, in academic medical centers, getting grants and getting publications is one of the primary vehicles for career advancement. In addition, at many U.S. academic medical centers, clinical trials, the portfolio of clinical trials an academic medical center offers to its patients is part of how that academic medical center draws patients to their center as opposed to other centers. So there are ways in which there are incentives to run clinical trials that are disconnected from the ultimate goal of trying to get effective treatments uh, into patients or trying to validate uh, effective treatments. And I think Oftentimes, those incentives may be driving inefficiencies uh, in the way that we do human research. Several years ago, you published a very important paper on sunitinib. And uh, and you've done this, of course, for other drugs. But this is one that uh, I can summarize off the top of my head. So that's why, because I, I read it a few times. And I, I thought it was wonderful. And and the point you were making in this paper was several fold. So one, you follow the clinical development of sunitinib, which has FDA drug approvals in several tumor types, um, but the first of which was renal cell carcinoma. Um, later, it was approved as a, as a salvage drug, second-line drug for GI stromal cancer tumor, GIST. Um, and, and now it has a couple of other approvals for neuroendocrine tumor, et cetera, et cetera. We, we could talk about that another day. But what you followed was maybe the first 10 years of its clinical trajectory. And what you noted, I think, in, in a couple of really elegant figures was what was the cumulative response rate over time? So when you were giving this drug to people in clinical testing, what was the response rate you found over time? And what you found was it was initially tested in tumor types for which it did make sense to test. And in fact, the response rate was something like 30% objective response rate. Um, But as time wore on, as we tested it over and over in different tumor types, that response rate plummeted. And the cumulative response rate ended up something like 5% or 4%, a very meager response rate. And what you also plotted so elegantly was the cumulative percentage of people undergoing grade three to five adverse events. And that started very low, but over time, it went up and up and up. 
And then you show a graph that says, you know, the white circles and squares are positive trials, the black ones are negative, and it's a timeline. And over time, we see there's some white in the beginning, but then there's just a whole lot of black. And when I looked at that data, and I read your paper, um, you know, the conclusion I came to was, it looks like people are reaching. Like they started with a drug that was promising. They tested it where it was promising. They struck gold, literally, because they're probably making billion dollars plus in revenue. And then they said, maybe it'll work elsewhere. And they started testing it in broader and broader portfolios. But all that really meant was they were, they were testing it in places that it was less and less likely to work and more and more likely to harm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so what do you think about this paper, which of course you did, and, and, uh, and, and, and what, what did it teach you? Yeah, well, I think that's a really fair summary. I mean, I think, you know, if you're, first of all, if you're a drug company and you want to get a product to market, if you're smart, you're going to invest in the most biologically plausible or compelling hypotheses. And if you assume that drug companies are pretty good at sorting out the promising hypotheses from the less promising ones, then they have really strong incentives to put all of their resources towards the most promising indications. And so what we saw there with Sunitinib, and we've seen this in many other areas, is that oftentimes it's the first indication or the second indication that is put into testing. Is the, That's the one that ultimately leads to uh, regulatory approval. After you have regulatory approval, all bets are off. You no longer have really strong incentives to invest your resources in the most promising hypotheses. Quite the contrary. You may now have... Re- incentives to invest your resources in much less promising hypotheses. I can't prove this, but my overall hypothesis would be that if you could sort of um, rank the prior probability that any particular indication is going to show efficacy, uh, if you sort of had the first indication tested, second indication, third, et cetera, you would see a descending prior probability as you go through more and more indications of a product, you know, having promise against the indication uh, it's being tested in. In other words, as you go from early clinical development to late post-approval testing, the probability your intervention is actually going to show efficacy in the indication you're testing uh, really begins to decline. Part of what's going on there, again, has to do with incentives. If you're a drug company, as I've argued in previous papers, once you have a drug that's approved, you don't have to actually prove that it works in another indication. All you have to do is to create the suggestion that it might work in another indication, something I've called clinical agnosticism, and that could be enough for your drug to be taken up on clinical practice guidelines. So you have incentives to test actually less compelling hypotheses right off the bat. But in addition, there are low entry barriers to doing those clinical trials. If a drug is already approved, it's easy for individuals at academic medical centers to get access to that drug and to test it against an indication that, again, has probably a much less compelling evidentiary rationale. And, um, you know, I sometimes worry that there's a lot of great post-approval research, and I don't want to knock the entire enterprise of post-approval research. There's really important work to be done trying to optimize drugs that are approved, et cetera. But I sometimes worry that some of the trials that we end up with are really more trials of opportunity uh, then they are substantive, you know, important hypotheses that we ought to be testing. 
That's that's marvelously put. Um, and I think just a few things to kind of piggyback on that is uh, once you once you get a drug to market for one indication, um, you've already paid for a lot of things. You've paid for the animal testing. You've paid for all of the things you need to pay for to put a drug in a human being. And that cost is a sunk cost. And then the calculation goes for every additional dollar you spend on a research portfolio, what's your likely return on investment? And, you know, this is something that that I got very interested in recently, and we wrote a paper called "Low Value Drug Approvals Incentivize um, You Know Marginal Drugs." And and our point was in the current regulatory environment, the threshold for drug approval is very very low, which I think you and I both agree. Um, you don't have to have a lot of efficacy data to bring a drug to market. When you do get a drug to market, because we allow prices to go sky's the limit, even a market share of ten thousand people will be a billion dollar drug in the modern world. Um, you're making revenue like you've never made revenue. And what that means is the incentive to come on market is really, really high, or the incentive to gain a market share is very, very high. The standard um, to come to market is very, very low. It incentivizes you to test a broad portfolio of compounds with low preclinical rationale, because even a few lucky pulls of the slot machine, uh, three cherries, and you're rich, and it pays for the whole portfolio. Um, and I think that might in part be, you know, what you're seeing in the Sunitinib, but you're adding one thing on top of that, which is you don't even need a subsequent marketing authorization to push these drugs. You merely need the agreement of experts because of the off-label laws that are, um, you know, dominate in both Canada and the United States. Um, I think it's a recipe. For, yeah, and I guess yeah. I'll just say I'll just say one thing. Just on top of that, it, you don't even necessarily even need a guideline to endorse it. If you have a trial that has a positive, that's a you know, it's an equivocal result. It's ambiguous. Uh, that might be enough for a clinician to use it in a particular patient, or if you have a trial that has a negative result, but you have a subgroup analysis that suggests that it's active in some particular subgroup of patients that have a particular marker or some demographic characteristic, that might be enough for a clinical practitioner to use the drug off-label. So, you know, this is where the line between, you know, between promotion and scientific scholarly publication becomes incredibly blurry. And, you know, as you know, I'm sure uh, the FDA creates a safe harbor for companies to distribute reprints of clinical trial publications. And so there's a way in which companies are legally allowed to circulate inconclusive clinical trial findings as a means of promoting their product. I agree with you wholeheartedly. And I think the subgroup analysis point you're making is astute and and reveals, I think, another deeper irony, which is I recently saw some lung cancer investigators criticize the EMA who approved a drug, uh, dervalimumab, in stage three lung cancer, but they put a ban on PDL1 0%. So they said, look, there's a subgroup in this clinical trial that we think is not deriving benefit. We're not going to approve it for that purpose. The US FDA, of course, included that subgroup. Um, the, the thought leaders in lung cancer on, on the internet saying that it would be wrong to not give the drug in this subgroup um, because they think that it's a, it's a spurious post hoc subgroup analysis. You know, it could be noise, which is fine and may even be statistically, I think there's some, there's a canon of philosophy that would support that. But these are the very same people that seven years ago, there was a subgroup analysis showing Pemetrexid was better in adenocarcinoma than squamous, and they all switched their practice. So they are very selective in when they think subgroups uh, should be taken seriously. When they allow the promotion of costly drug products, um, then they say, yeah, let's take it. But when they curb the use of costly drug products, uh, that's that's not a good subgroup. And I think it's a it's a hypocrisy. Um, it's intellectually inconsistent. And I, I see it as an observer, but I don't think that they're seeing it. And and maybe I'm being a bit uncharitable in my portrayal of of their views on the topic. Yeah, I mean, I can't speak to the particular case, but um, 
you know, certainly one often, you know, it's, it's not uncommon to see very kind of inconsistent reasoning strategies used uh, in one case versus another where, um, so I, I, I take your point. As somebody who studies philosophy, it must uh, frustrate you deeply when you see inconsistency like that. Uh, I, I, I never studied it as much as you've studied it, but I studied it enough to get frustrated. So let me let me shift. I, I think what, yeah. I think, yeah, I'll just say really quickly. Yeah. I think what's frustrating not just to see inconsistencies, but when you point out those inconsistencies and you try to kind of walk someone through them, they get angry. That it just it doesn't stick. They get angry, or it doesn't stick, or they don't get it, and you just are sort of puzzled. I mean, you think that. Part of our task is to apply reasoning to the problems that we're confronting. And in medicine, you know, medical doctors are smart. They've gone through rigorous training and, you know, they're, they have a incredibly well-developed skills in terms of how to evaluate evidence. And it's, it's incredibly frustrating when you can't sort of walk them through kind of a, you know, a clear reasoning process that will, you know, uh, with respect to inconsistencies. I think um, I, I agree with you, and I I I, I, I share that uh, I share that, and I see that every time uh, when I get the reviewer comments for a manuscript. Um, but I also think that I mean we have we have some things that we could do a little bit better. One, we're not really educating these doctors in statistical principles the same way we educate them in molecular biology. And I know your background is actually in molecular biology. We spend a great deal of time teaching doctors the intricacies of the best available biologic models of the day. We don't teach them how to interpret subgroup analyses. Many of them could not tell me what an interaction coefficient is or, you know, or, or the need for replication studies for subgroups. Um, they, they simply don't have that, those tools in their toolkit. And that's dangerous when you go out in a world and those kinds of things are the basis of clinical practice. Um, the other thing I think is that, you know, it, it, it's difficult for me personally not to be a little bit cynical when I see that the inconsistencies serve a greater convenience, which is uh, the convenience of continuing to engage in consulting relationships with companies. And that's what that's what troubles me. I wish I don't know if that's necessarily a causal thing, but I wish that optics weren't there. And if those optics weren't there, I think then I would feel more like people are at least acting in good faith. Okay, let, let me turn to your um let me turn to your new paper in clinical trials. It's called Benefit, Burden, and Impact for Cohort of Post-Approval Cancer Combination Trials. And I think this is another paper you've done with Benjamin Carlisle, um, Adelaide Dusso, um, and and yourself. And I think this is um, you know, simply stellar paper. And I, I'm gonna do a bad job summarizing it, and then we ask you to do a good job summarizing it. But I think the bad job summarizing it, the way I approached it when I read your paper, is um, this is something that's often held out as a, an area of major promise, which is that even though many of us recognize our cancer drugs come to market often with meager benefits on average, people say that, well, in combination, they're going to work wonders. The same drugs that individually might be marginal or meager, you shouldn't scoff at because we're going to put them together in combinations that will really uh, tackle cancer in a very clear and demonstrable way. And what you've done is you said, let me take my portfolio level thinking and apply it to this problem. Let me take a set of cancer drugs and let me look at all of the post-approval cancer combination trials. And I want to add an asterisk, which is you're looking at published studies. So if anything, this is the tip of the iceberg in the good direction. So this is as good as it's going to get. Um, all of the studies that are suppressed, negative, gray literature, you're not going to get. And if anything, that would just sort of erode your findings even further. And and I don't want to spoil it because I want you to give the summary. But um, I will say your findings are sobering for somebody who believes that this is the promise of cancer medicine. Um, 
And so how would you, how would you summarize this paper? So, uh, so let me just back up and say that what we were interested here, again, this is this distinction between post-approval and pre-approval research. And so we wanted to look at combination therapy studies that were initiated after a group of drugs, in this case, 12 drugs that got approved in 2005, six and seven, uh, post-approval trials and see what fraction of those actually led to a new FDA license, uh, uptake on clinical practice guidelines. And we also wanted to see whether or not there were any survival advantages for patients that had been randomized in randomized trials to combination arms versus monotherapy arms, and whether or not there was elevated uh, adverse events in the combination arm versus the monotherapy arm. The crux of what we found is that uh, if you had... Uh, Basically, you know, at least five years of follow-up from the launch of each combination post-approval combination therapy study, that only a very small fraction of these interventions ultimately changed clinical practice, as indicated by uptake on clinical practice guidelines. Actually, none of them were taken up in terms of FDA approvals. If you extend out from five years to eight years, a couple of them got picked up by FDA approval. But uh, for the most part, you know, very, uh, only a small fraction of these trials within five years at least led to any kind of uh, recommendations and clinical practice guidelines. Less than 10%, would you say? Right. It, was about five, it was about 5 or 6%. Yeah. And I should also mention that we used pretty permissive standards here. We were looking at NCCN guidelines. I think most people in cancer uh, would acknowledge that NCCN guidelines are probably a bit more permissive than most of the other guidelines. So we, we really wanted to give these combination therapies the best chance possible of showing clinical impact. And again, only about five to 6% of these different indications that were uh, combinations that were tested ultimately led to a revision of a clinical practice guideline. When we looked at safety, this was not too surprising, but we found that there was elevated uh, risk of uh, grade three, four and five adverse events in the combination arm versus in the monotherapy arm. And that was a statistically significant result. When we look at efficacy, on progression-free survival of surrogate uh, outcome, there seemed to be an advantage for the combination arm versus the monotherapy arm, but that when you look at survival, the confidence intervals uh, exactly straddle no effect. Uh, and uh, uh, for the combination arm, there is not any, even any hint of there being any survival advantage for allocation to the combination arm. So again, going back to earlier in your interview, um, what this seems to say is that we put a lot of patients into post-approval combination therapy studies. Those patients don't seem to be getting an edge in terms of survival benefit. They are certainly put in harm's way in terms of elevated risk of grade three, four, and five adverse events. All of that would be okay if a good fraction of these were leading to alterations of clinical practice. But in fact, very few of these have led to uh, alterations in clinical practice. That is, um, and that is a stunning finding. And 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 just to to further twist the knife on this issue, you know, I I I think the NCCN guidelines is incredibly permissive. And we published a paper in the BMJ a couple of years ago, frequency and level of recommendations of their extrapolations. And when they go beyond FDA approvals, you know, one third of the time they provide no cited evidence, uh, and the rest of the time it was small, uncontrolled, so called, uh, you know clinical agnostic kind of studies that like you've discussed in, in JAM Internal Medicine, the kinds of studies that really kind of seed the literature, give the sort of veneer that this might be evidence-based, but provide no actual evidence.
evidence that these things help. So that's the NCCN, uh, a, a group of heavily conflicted, 85% of them receive on average $10,000 in payments. That's a paper by Mitchell, um, a group of conflicted doctors recommending drugs for off-label purposes in a rampant and based on low levels of evidence. And what you're saying is even with that low bar, Less than 6% of these combinations even clear that bar. So the rest of them, and this is the published literature, so in fact, if you could get the unpublished literature too, maybe it's only 3% or 2% or 1%, the rest of them have data so sobering, so negative, that even this NCCN guidelines that's prone for exuberant recommendation does not have the courage to recommend these things. That is, I think, a stunning and staggering finding. And I think it it fits this this challenge a few ways. One, people need to be thinking about this. So you make the excellent point that, and I think your paper says something like 70,000 people are exposed to these drugs. Um, you know, we're talking tens of thousands of humans of beings who are exposed to these drugs in post-approval combination studies. Um, that is a lot of human welfare that's being sacrificed for uh, a handful of sort of agnostic data that leads to a few recommendations. Um, the next thing that jumps out at me is unless you want to jump in there? Well, yeah, I'll just say something really quickly. And it's important also to think about, is this really a good research investment? I mean, let's sort of step back and let's leave it, Let's leave aside patient welfare for a second. I mean, that's obviously really important and that's what's motivating me. But a large fraction of cancer trials uh, actually fail to address their primary endpoint because they simply can't recruit enough patients. And so that's obviously a terrible thing for patients. It means they will have volunteered in studies that can't actually even answer their hypotheses. But it's also a big concern for researchers if these low-value trials are siphoning patients from high-value clinical trials. You really want to make sure that that limited resource of patients is allocated towards the most promising hypotheses. That's how we're going to get the most progress in cancer. I think on top of that, we have to think about researchers themselves as being a scarce resource. Uh, It takes decades to, to train a physician and to, you know, to train them how to do the research. And even with a private system of education, there's a substantial social subsidy for the training of physicians. And so you, as a, a government or, you know, the public has a strong stake in making sure that that scarce resource of clinical oncologists is allocated towards the most promising problems. And I guess part of what concerns me with post-approval research is that Instead of probably researching drugs that are more likely to have a major impact on on uh, on cancer medicine, uh, instead a lot of the talent and a lot of the patients are being absorbed by trials that have very limited prospects of actually altering clinical practice. I I even wonder if some of these trials would be best served by just testing different strategies of the dosing of the effective drug. You know, we have a paucity of studies that have tested different ways of dosing drugs that we know are effective, uh, starting low, going high, high to low, different drug level, different sort of schedules. We have a paucity of studies there, but instead, that's not sexy. That's not in vogue. We don't do those studies, which probably would have a much higher rate of being useful because we know at the outset the drugs are actually effective. We are testing our drugs in combination, holding out this sort of mythical idea idea that it's going to work wonders. And I think what you show is that it doesn't. But you make an excellent point that we can't forget the um, the societal investment in terms of the people, the human labor force that's doing these trials. Um, I do believe, and I cannot prove, but I do believe you're spot on that these studies are siphoning patients away um, from more pressing clinical questions. And I would hypothesize, but I cannot prove that 
uncontrolled studies run at top cancer centers, siphon patients away from randomized cooperative group studies that ask definitive questions because the investigators have much more at stake professionally to put people on an uncontrolled study where they're going to be first author than they do to add people to a randomized trial where they'll be a middle author. And so I suspect that that's going on. And so that's why we have like randomized phase three trials that are super important that never accrue. Makes me pull my hair out. Meanwhile, we have uncontrolled studies of sort of low value and poor preclinical science combinations that easily accrue, uh, which which is baffles me if you think about it from a sort of top down, what's best for people. Mm-hmm. One thing I want to talk to you about is the these forest plots. Yeah. Figure three and figure four, they are sobering, which is when you take these novel drugs that are approved, which were largely targeted therapies, what are you going to combine them with? So one is um, even though we hear a great deal about how all these targeted therapies will be combined you know, together miraculously, those of us who've been practicing for uh, many years have seen, uh, often when you combine several targeted therapies, toxicity is so bad it dies in phase one. And people forget that it, it, these are really many, many targeted therapy combinations have failed in phase one. And when you look at the trials that are published, of course, you're probably biased a little bit more towards the latter phases, phase two, phase three. Um, they're mostly being combined with cytotoxic chemotherapy drugs. Uh, so that's just one thing that I note. The second thing I note is when you look at overall survival, there was only one positive study, and that was the Stewart study, I think, which is Carfilzomib Lendex versus Lendex. Uh, everything else is negative. The pooled hazard ratio is one. Um, these combinations are not improving survival on a- in aggregate for patients. And it might be uh, just sort of like uh, like buying a lottery ticket to be on one of the trials in which your survival is actually improved. It's it's staggeringly low odds, um, which I think flies in the face of the narrative of oncology that we're going to take marginal drugs and put them together and achieve miraculous responses. You've looked at all such drugs put together and you are not seeing any of these miracles coming out the back end. I mean, that's certainly the case with these, you know, with this cohort of drugs. Again, these are drugs that were approved 2005, 2006, and 2007. Um, I want to make sure to sort of make two qualifications of this. Uh, First of all, in this study, we're not looking at pre-approval combination therapy studies. Uh, I would suspect, as I said earlier in the podcast, that drug companies' pre-approval are motivated only to test the hypotheses that are most likely to get their drug to a market quickly. Yeah. So I would hypothesize yeah. that the risk-benefit balance would be different for pre-approval combination therapy studies. Um, and I should also make sure to qualify this by saying that this, you know, that it's it's possible. I think it's unlikely, but it is possible that with a more recent cohort of drugs, uh, you know, if you had drugs that uh, were approved in 2015, 16, and 17, for example, that things might look a little bit different. I don't know. Uh, And of course, we won't know that until we have five years of follow-up from the post-approval trials uh, of those drugs. It's impossible to do that kind of a study. I'll make one prediction, Jonathan, about the future. In the future, those drugs approved from 2015 to 2017, the results will look different than these results because the table will be seven times as long. The only thing that's changed is that we're doing way more low-value combination studies because there's more money in the space. But that's just my prediction. You'll tell me in a decade from now if I was right or wrong. So what's your, what's your next ca- important caveat? Yeah, well, no, that's, that's the main one. Those are the two, the two, yeah. the two big things. And I, I think you're probably right, but... Um, Oh, what I was going to say yeah. Yeah, was was that, um, yeah. you know, a lot of times when people look at these data, they say, oh, well, that's because these are all tyrosine kinase inhibitors. That's sort of yesterday's drugs. 
we're now on to immunotherapies and all sorts of other, you know, kinds of treatment strategies. And we think we've sort of figured this stuff out. So it's funny because in the era when these drugs were, trials were being done, people were saying that about cytotoxic drugs. They were saying, oh, well, you know, now we're on the tyrosine kinase inhibitors. We're out of the dark ages of doing cytotoxic drug, you know, drug trials. And so, you know, again, it's important to remember that at the time that these studies were being launched, there was a really strong expectation and there were strong claims about the science that combining the drugs in this manner would lead to major advances. Again, if you look at the success rate of combination therapy testing post-approval, in my opinion, it's probably worse in terms of success rate than pre-approval research yes. I mean, it's really striking. You would think, yeah. this gets back to the Sunina paper, you would think the more you learn about the drug, the more likely you are to get you know, a good risk-benefit balance in those trials, the more likely you're able to unlock whatever utility is left over in that drug. Uh, and it seems, if anything, the reverse. It seems like the longer you continue testing the drug, as I said earlier, uh, the lower, in some ways, the standards of evidentiary, you know, the, the lower the evidentiary standards to test that drug, and as a result, the lower the probability that it's going to lead to any kind of major alteration of clinical practice. And I also want to just underscore a point you made earlier. There's a lot of really unglamorous research that rarely gets done. I think you were mentioning, uh, you know, looking at different dosing, trying to optimize. We often don't really have optimal doses of uh, drugs after they get approval. Uh, really critical that we try to find lower doses that are going to spare patients of adverse events, uh, but still maintain the same level of efficacy looking at how we sequence drugs, you know, which drug we give a patient first versus, uh, you know, a second line, et cetera, uh, you know, treatment algorithms, all that kind of research is much less glamorous. It's really, really hard to do, and it often just doesn't get done. And it's probably harder to, you know, in some ways, it's harder to make money off of those kinds of trials. Uh, very few drug companies want to find ways to give their drugs at lower doses. I think... Um... I have to acknowledge one thing, which is the time that uh, I bungled through technical difficulties, many of these things that have led us to have a later start time. And thus, our, our time is almost out. Uh, but I could talk to you all day about these issues. And I have a lot of other sort of thoughts that I haven't pushed on you to see what you think, uh, because I consider yourself the expert in the field of thinking about portfolio level analyses. Um, so, I, And I want to give you time for sort of a last word or some closing thoughts. But I, I got to have you back here on the podcast. And maybe we got to get you out here in person and, and do it right with uh, with the in-person recording. Because I think this is perhaps the most important issue in cancer medicine today. Actually, I'm going to go ahead and say that. It's, it's the most important issue, which is what are we doing in all these clinical trials? How are we generating data for clinical practice? Is that data sufficient to change practice? Um, where are the inefficiencies? How are we wasting money? But how are we wasting human capital? These are the most important questions. And there is nobody who's asking these questions uh, besides you, besides a handful of people. There is such little interest in these questions because every stakeholder doesn't see it as their problem and they don't see the benefit to them. Um, but there will someday be a historian of science looking back at oncology at this period of time and they will look back and say, boy, there were a couple people out there talking about this issue, uh, but the field didn't really listen to them that much. Um, and, I, and, I, and I'm confident that's the way the history books will be written someday. Um, but I guess I wanted to say a few things in closing thoughts. One, um, uh, I'm really grateful you you do this work for a few reasons, of course, because I think it's important, but also because I think as a researcher, um, 
I'm happy to read your papers. And I, I don't know if that's true for a lot of things anymore. I read, you know, a lot of books and I read a lot of papers in medicine. And I think all of us who do this longer and longer, we come jaded. And I, there's so many times I pick up an article and I have, I, I feel myself being depressed and bored reading it because it says nothing that, that gets me thinking about something that I wasn't thinking about before. But when I see that you've published a new article, I get excited the way I get excited about a new TV series, a new TV season uh, of a show I like, because I know I'm going to learn something or see something or see the world in a way I haven't seen before. And and so I want to commend you for that. And I think that's something that as academics, we don't talk about that much, the people whose work you know, really inspires us. And so I want to say you inspire my thinking on this topic. And I wouldn't have thought about so many things about you know, I'm interested, now I got interested in statistical correction for some of these problems, uh, but that's only because I've been reading your work so closely. Um, the next thing I want to want to mention before I give you the, the last words and closing thoughts is that, um, you know, I had a podcast recently where I talked about Bernie Fisher, and he was a guy who kind of bucked the trend and said, you know, maybe it's not necessary uh, that we do these kind of horribly invasive surgeries. We can get away with less. And I talked about how the profession treated him during his career, which was they really didn't give him a lot of stock. They didn't give him a lot of credit. There were a lot of vocal critics. And I guess what I want to say is I don't think you've experienced it to the same degree. I mean, I, I don't hear people criticizing you because you're such a nice person. Um, but I, I think that uh, that these papers in a, in a just world, uh, this would be the New England Journal of Medicine paper week in and week out because it's not about the next novel uncontrolled trial coming to market. That's not the central issue of this period of time. It's about what are we doing as a profession in having these portfolio of trials? And is that the best thing we could be doing? This is the most important issue of the time. So I think, um, you know, these articles should have be should be treated as such. Um, anyway, so I'll let you conclude with any thoughts you've learned about portfolio level thinking. Um, and my kind of last question is, um, you know, you you did these studies because you had a suspicion, but were you ever surprised by what you found? Or, or, or did these kind of confirm your doubts, confirm your fears? Uh, but did you actually ever collect the data and say, you know, even I wouldn't have seen the world uh, this way. I wouldn't have expected it to come out this way. Okay, that's a really interesting question. I had to think about that a little bit. I mean, I see, I am constantly surprised. We, you know, we do studies and uh uh, sometimes I'm surprised to confirm my hypotheses. Uh, I always begin with a default uh, that uh, every hypothesis I'm going to, you know, test is going to be a null result. Uh, in fact, I have a joke in my lab, which is that only uh, I, one out of 40 hypotheses I test turns out to be true. Uh, <laughs> if you, it, there's two tail testing yes, here. Yes. Yes. Uh, but but um, but I am you know I think what really has surprised me partly uh, one of the big surprises in this work is has been the reception of my work I mean this combination therapy study I think the findings are really quite stark and striking and sobering and you know I sort of expected that top cancer venues would be really interested in this story if nothing else to kind of chasten the optimism or exuberance that many researchers and funding bodies bring to the hypotheses that they end up testing and or funding. And I think what really has for me been incredibly sobering has been how difficult it is to get an audience for some of the kinds of findings my lab generates. So not all the findings my lab generates are as kind of shocking and surprising. For example, I mentioned that issue about the uh, Preclinical evidence, uh, the relationship between preclinical evidence and phase two clinical trials. On the one hand, we found that a large fraction of phase two trials go forward without really solid preclinical evidence. 
What we didn't find in that paper was that it really made a difference. In fact, if you looked at the preclinical, the studies that were supported versus not supported by preclinical evidence, there was no difference in an effect. That was disappointing for us in a sense. Uh, so, but, you know, not necessarily an earth-shattering result. But I think that these findings in this particular paper, uh, as I said, ought to really kind of uh, chasten some of the thinking about combination therapy testing. But, uh, you know, we shopped this around uh, many of the top cancer venues and uh, many places, uh, you know, wasn't sent out for review. Often when it was sent out for review, some of the criticisms were to us kind of, you know, uh, unfair. Uh, often uh, they felt very partisan to us. Yes, I I can imagine. And I, I believe I've tasted tasted a little bit of that uh, of that fruit from that tree when we send in some articles. Um, but I think yeah. um, I think there might be a broader you know point here that we don't have enough time to flesh out. But I think that to some degree, when you look at the financial incentives, as you alluded to, the incentives for cancer centers to differentiate themselves from community practices to offer trials. When you look at the kinds of things that are valued at universities, um, when I started to get interested in the money and I saw how much money comes from NIH indirects, but even more, how much money comes from uh, the the sort of uh, the the sort of fat built into some of these clinical trials, I realized universities become addicted to this money. Having clinical trialists doing large portfolios of trials is one of the most lucrative things you can have. These people command huge amounts of respect and internal funding. Universities throw a lot of money behind this. And I fear that the price of all of this is the slow demise of academia, of people like you, uh, people like um, people like you who are doing this kind of critical thinking. There is less and less space and less and less resources for that, which used to once be the stock and trade of academics. And so I think, you know, I, I, I commend you for, for keeping this going. This is the most important issue of our day, I believe, in cancer medicine. And history will vindicate you, I'm, I'm confident. And uh, in the meantime, uh, there will be lots of people whose minds are slowly changed when they look at these results uh, that really speak for themselves. Um, you know, if, if somebody reads this paper, you don't even need to read the full paper. Just look at the figures and tables and you'll see half the story uh, and then read the paper for the full story. Um, but uh, so I commend you for doing this work. And, uh, and, and, uh, and I know you're going to keep it up. So uh, thank you so much, Dr. Kimmelman, for coming on the podcast. And uh, we'll bring you back. I think we got to bring you back for a longer discussion because there's so many other things we need to talk about from like, how do we consent people to doing this? How do we fund doing this research? How do we reward and promote the right behaviors? I mean, there's just so much we didn't get into that I wish we had a chance for. Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun and I uh, look forward to further conversations. Thanks, Dr. Kimmelman. It's great to see you. Good to see you too. You've been listening to Season 2 of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening. <laughs>